Psalm 136, this song was originally composed uh, to be read antiphonally, I believe. Uh, The leader would read a line and then the congregation would respond. It's why it it has the same line 26 times in 26 verses. And so I'd like to to read it that way this morning. That is going to require audience participation. Uh, So uh, you all have a job to do. I'm gonna help you with it. I'm asking for a favor. Would you please uh, do this in the uh, new Austin T. Duncan International? translation. So uh, the way I want you to read that, that second line, that answer line is like this. Jot it down if you need to. Trust me, if you look it in your Bible, it's going to be harder. Just, just pay attention here. I want you to say this, because forever is his loyal love. Okay? Try it. Because forever is his loyal love. Don't tell first and second service, but third service is vastly superior. Let's try it again. Because forever is his loyal love. All right, let's read it together. I'll read the first line. You respond with the second all the way through the psalm. Give thanks to Yahweh because he is good, because forever is his loyal love. Give thanks to the God of gods because forever is his loyal love. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who does great wonders, he alone. To him who with discernment makes the heavens. To him who extends the earth upon the waters. To him who makes the great lights. The sun for dominion by day. The moon and the stars for dominion by night. To him who struck down Egypt through their firstborn and brought out Israel from among them by a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who cut the Red Sea in pieces and brought Israel over in the middle of it. and shook off Pharaoh and his force into the Red Sea. To him who brought his people through the desert. To him who struck down great kings and slew powerful kings. Sahon, king of the Amorites. Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as an inheritance. Inheritance for Israel, his servant. Who in our lowliness remembered us. who tore us away from our adversaries. One who gives bread to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven because forever is his loyal love. Amen. Thank you. It's powerful, isn't it? To hear that same line repeated so intentionally It's relentless. The focus of this song is is obvious. It's hard to miss the point. 
And if you're to read the Bible, I hope you would never miss the point that the center's scripture around the love of God in Christ manifest in him sending his son. The great Christian historian of missions, Lafayette, said that there was no one more worthy of the title apostle to Islam than the great missionary Samuel Zermer. Zwermer was born April 12, 1867 in Michigan, a little town, a Dutch Reformed town. His family immigrated from the Netherlands. He had 16 brothers and sisters and a dog named Dodger. <laughs> and six of his sisters became school teachers, four of his brothers became ministers, and at a very young age he had a desire to use his life for service to the Lord in bringing the gospel to the nations. For his undergrad, he went to college and met other like-minded students who had a heart for the Middle East and Muslim people. In those days, mission boards in the United States were not sending people, uh, missionaries, to a region they called Arabia, the Middle East. It was too difficult to reach, they said. It was a fruitless place. It was a dangerous place. And so after seminary, when he and a group of friends applied to the mission board to be sent to Arabia, they turned them down. It's a fruitless effort, they said. Don't go there, go somewhere else. Go to people who will listen. Well, this faithful man, Samuel Zwemer, started his own mission board and sent himself to Arabia. He was soon joined by a group of his friends and he ministered to the Muslim people for decades. Early on in his ministry, he uh, met an Australian lady who was serving as a missionary nurse there and she signed up to take Arabic lessons with Samuel. And it was against the rules of her mission to interact with men, but the exception was her Arabic teacher. And of course, they fell in love. Uh, When they got married, her mission agency in Australia was so upset that they demanded that Samuel repay the missions agency for her travel expenses and her training expenses, and he gladly did so. This caused the Arab men that knew him to think so much more highly of him since he bought a wife. (laughs) This and every other opportunity Samuel Zwemer used to exploit, to tell a people who were hard-hearted towards the gospel how much God loved them. He expended his resources, his own life in service to Muslim people because he knew that they needed the message of the loyal, eternal, everlasting love of the one true God who made himself known in Jesus Christ. He had two precious daughters who languished and died of dysentery and were were buried in Bahrain. He had inscribed on their gravestone, worthy is the lamb to receive riches. All of his life and even those things most precious to him, he was willing to give in exchange to bring the message of the love of God to people who desperately needed it. He did this 
to the age of 85. When he was 85 years old, he was preaching in New York City to a group of InterVarsity students, three sermons calling them to join the mission, to give their lives, to take the gospel to hard places. And after three sermons in one day, he dropped dead. I feel the same way right now. (laughs) And that heart, that beat for the gospel among the Muslim people finally stopped beating. But it was Samuel Zwemer who said, after 40 years of, of service to these people, I am convinced that the nearest way to the Muslim heart is the way of the love of God, the way of the cross. Before us is a psalm that is a composition, a hymn, a symphony, composed to the love of God, specifically his steadfast love. And my objective this morning is to uh, unpack this song with you and to remind you of something that I hope will be unforgettable for you for the rest of your life, that however you use your life in service to God, the main message that we have, the main message that we bring is the message of the immeasurable love of God. That is the song that we find in Psalm 136. Its message is unmissable. This song is insistent that everything in creation, everything in in redemption, everything in the conquest and deliverance of the people of of Israel arises from his loyal, committed, and steadfast and unchanging love. This song teaches us that God's love is the wonder of all wonders, that God is love, that his most basic characteristic is seen as his love, and it reminds us in the form of a hymn why everything that we face in this life can be faced better and more wisely if we face it with knowing that the motivation for what God does is rooted and grounded in his glorious love. So let's look at this song, and it's really in five parts, five movements. The first one is in praise of the everlasting love of God, verses one through three, in praise of the everlasting love of God. Three imperatives, three commands mark the first three verses. It comes to us in our English Bibles as give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. A word that means to confess or to speak of or to ascribe to. Give thanks is a good translation, but don't miss the force of it. It's a command to confess why God is worthy, why he's worthy of praise, why he's worthy of thanksgiving, and it's directed right to him in his covenant name, verse one, to Yahweh. And then it gives us an initial reason, a grounding point, a foundational motivation. It says, because he is good. For a verse that says 26 times consecutively, because forever is his loyal love, this is noteworthy. There is apparently a relationship, and we see this in lots of places in the Old Testament, between God's love and God's goodness. See, God is intrinsically good. He is wholly good. His character is pure and undefiled. God is not a God of deception. He is not a God who has a malignancy. He is the God of love, and he is this loving God who is intrinsically and wholly good. 
And so it provides us with this initial reason and tells us to give thanks to the God of gods. That's uh, really the concept that is in the song that precedes this one, Psalm 135. It has many of the same exact sentences as Psalm 136, but its accent, rather than being on the love of God, is the superiority of God to false gods. Now we understand because of 1 Corinthians that an idol is not a thing, but an idol is a thing that people worship. It is not a real God, and so when we read those lines, God of gods, one God is uppercase, one God is lowercase. And those other gods could be idols, they could be the false religions of this world, they could be the things that you value more than God, your career, your possessions, your plans, even your own family. God does not tolerate idolatry. And so we're directed to praise the God of gods. We are in praise of his everlasting love and we need to know who he is. He's the covenant God of Israel. He's the God who is over all other competing gods. Verse three, he's given not a name here, but a title, the Lord of Lords. This emphasizes his sovereignty, his dominion. This is how this song starts out. But to understand it, we have to think a little bit about this chorus, this repeated refrain. And if you're the kind of Christian who doesn't like the the pop Christian songs that are overly repetitive, I hope you like this one, though it's worse than any 7-11 praise song. That's seven words 11 times. This one's six Hebrew syllables 26 times. It's not contrived and it's not cute. It intends to have this laser-like focus. And so let's look at that little phrase. In the Hebrew, it begins with the word because. It's a causal word. The same word in verse one occurs twice and then will follow 26 times. This verse is saying something about why God does what he does. That whether it's his work in creation or in deliverance as the psalm works its way through a, a brief survey of the history of Israel, it's teaching us that the motivation of God in doing what God does has much to do with the love of God. Now we talk a lot about the glory of God being his motivation and that's absolutely right. But because God is God, he is the kind of being who can, in his goodness, in his love, in his divine simplicity, have this motivation that is drawn to both give all glory to his name and to be rooted and grounded in this effective love that he has on display here. A good example would be Deuteronomy 7 where God speaks of his electing love of the nation of Israel. He didn't choose other surrounding nations, he chose that nation, not because they were good or better or best or something. He says, I chose you, Deuteronomy 7, 7, because I loved you. God is motivated by a relentless affection for his people. God's love is his dominating and defining characteristic. If you compare this to, say, what you see in in Islam, it's very different. Though they speak of God's love in the Quran, when his love is spoken of in a positive sense in the Quran, it's most often presented conditionally. God loves those who will do pious acts. God loves those who will do these things or not do these things. And though there are conditional affirmations of the love of God in in the Christian scriptures, God's love most often is presented as part and parcel of his character. As in 1 John, God is love. It's never presented that way in the Islamic religion. 
This is a good reminder for us that we need to be careful that we never assume people understand what it means when we say God is love. This could be for your Muslim neighbor or this could be for your secularist brother-in-law. To assume that what we mean by love is what God means by love would be to make a great mistake. In creation, God made man in his likeness. In our rebellion, we've attempted to return the favor. God is love on his terms by his definition. David Wells explained the sentence, God is love, this way. That sentence defining love would have been completed quite differently in the West today. In this is love, many would say that God is there for us when we need him. He is there for what we need from him. He is love in that he gives inward comfort and makes us feel better about ourselves. He is love in that he makes us happy, that he gives us a sense of fulfillment, that he gives us stuff, that he heals us, that he does everything to encourage us each and every day. You see, the love of God is not man-centered, it is God-centered. And God defines what his love is like. Love is not incidental to God, it's essential to his nature, it's fundamental, it's his eternal perfection. To put it another way, God is love means that God by nature is a lover and divine love is the heart of the biblical perspective about God. And so that brings us to this word loyal love. Really, it's a word you've all heard. It's the word hesed, a common word in the Old Testament. And it's a word that's best understood by two simple concepts, the concept of commitment or covenant and the concept of affection or love. Hesed, God's hesed is his loyal love, his steadfast love, his committed love, his unchanging love. And that's where we see the contrast with our definitions of love in this world centered around self and what we can get from someone else, God's love doesn't change. God's love is pure. God's love is committed. God's love never changes its mind. God never turns his back on those who he loves. God is by nature a God of love. And aren't we grateful that we meet the love of God in Christ? That we find forgiveness from sin because of him. And aren't we grateful to know that nothing can separate us from his love in Christ, that he has the kind of love that never gives up and never quits, so different than our human experience of love which falls so short. There's another word we didn't look at there. It's that word forever. And that's a significant word in this song because it occurs 26 times. Forever speaks from the perspective of God as he thinks about eternity. There's different ways the Bible talks about God's eternality, especially in the Old Testament. Sometimes they speak of God as from generation to generation. That means father, grandfather, great-grandfather. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That kind of way to think about the love of God. When it speaks of God's forever kind of love, it's from God's perspective, not a human perspective. God is the God whose love was known in eternity past when there was no one except God in his triune perfection, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who perfectly had a relationship of love, were infinitely satisfied in each other's brilliant perfection. 
And from that perspective of eternity past, we take that through our experience of God showing himself to his creation as a God of love and knowing that this whole thing will never end but in full consummation of the love of God, we will see God's love in its perfection in eternity future. That's what the word forever means. But we're not good at forever because we're temporal creatures. We get old. Life goes by so quickly, doesn't it? Our nostalgia reminds us of that. My kids were so little five seconds ago, and now I have a junior hire. (gasps) And you're looking at me and you're thinking, bub, you have no idea. (laughs) I went to bed last night, I was 20, now I got grandkids, right? (laughs) Doesn't it go by so quick? the seasons of life so quickly passing us by because we're so small, we are so far from even grasping what eternality is. We go to the DMV or the MVD or wherever you get your driver's license here. You guys drive like you're from LA, which I don't even know how they give any of us driver's license. (laughs) But we wait in line and we say, "Ah, that took forever. That's not forever. I got a text on my cell phone from my cell phone carrier the other day that says, I'm going over my data limit for the third month consecutively. It's the playoffs for NBA. What am I supposed to do? (laughs) And I think this doesn't make sense because I'm on a plan called unlimited. (laughs) So I clicked a button on my phone to call them and a nice lady answers representing this evil company. And she's so sweet and she says, oh sir, yeah, it's, it's no problem, this is easy to fix. The, the, the trouble is, is you're on the unlimited plan, we need to upgrade you. <laughs> I said, okay, what do you have for me? She says, you need to be on the beyond unlimited. Lady, I don't want to argue semantics. Sign me up for Beyond Unlimited. That's how hard it is for us to grasp forever the limitless one. And this is the love of God portrayed for us in this song but seen at the cross of Calvary. The eternal love of God is the grounds and motivation of what God does. And in verses one through three, it's, it, it's really the grounds of the reason for our praise of God. Well, the second stanza is verses four through nine, and it simply shows us creation itself was ordered by the everlasting love of God. Creation ordered by the everlasting love of God. And this is a, a picturesque description of the opening chapters of Genesis. Verse four calls him the miracle working God, the one who does great wonders, that everything on earth or in the heavens that God accomplished from the vast galaxies to tiny microbes, they were all made by the miracle working God. The emphasis is put in the Hebrew as on him alone, that he's the sole agent of creation that this is an umbrella for the rest of this song to say that God's the one who does everything by his great power, and then it gives examples. It says his wisdom in making the heavens. Discernment, skill, wisdom. 
using a a word that could be described as an artisan creating the vast space above us. Verse seven, to him who extends, or the Hebrew word really is stamps out the earth upon the waters. The same word used in the book of Exodus for a goldsmith applying metal plating to his uh, artisanship. God spoke this world into existence and it wasn't mere mechanical uh, creationism. It was so much more as this God spoke his creation into existence in all its complexities, in all its glory, in all its beauty, reflecting his wisdom and his power and the intricacy of his mind. And he just gives us a taste of it here, extending the earth upon the waters, making the great lights the fourth day of creation, the sun for dominion by day, the moon and the stars for dominion by night, all of creation for all of its span, pointing us towards the loyal love of God. He made a wonderful world for creatures in his image to enjoy so that they might know that he did it all because of his loyal love. This is creation on display. Third stanza, the longest one, verses 10 through 22. Look down at verse 10. This stanza is called Deliverance Accomplished by the Everlasting Love of God. And this, this is a, a crash course in the history of Israel, isn't it? He begins with, not with Abraham, but with Israel's deliverance from Egypt. To him who struck down, the word is just to hit. It's the final plague that went through and took the firstborn of Egypt and passed over the children of Israel. And he finds the cause of that to be the loyal love of God. And in bringing them out, it uses a word of of God's care and carrying these people, an intimate kind of word, and brought out Israel from among them. And, And then in verse 12, God pictures himself now as a strong warrior a strong hand and an outstretched arm. He's protecting them from their enemies. And then it uses the word for chop in verse 13 as God cuts the Red Sea in half and then again brings Israel over the middle of it. All of it because his loyal love is eternal, because forever is his loyal love. At that moment in his deliverance of his people, he was motivated by his eternal hesed, his loyal, affectionate commitment to his people. And the same was true in verse 15 when he shook, a word that means to shake out a garment or to shake out a a blanket. He shook Pharaoh and his forces into the sea. The greatest superpower of that ancient world, Egypt was shook like a blanket by God. That's the power of God on display because nothing can stop his love. No circumstance, no enemy, and so on he goes. 16, he brought his people through the desert. This speaks of his providential care in a very concise summary. Verse 17, to him who struck down great kings and then gives examples of these kings in verse 18, 19, and 20, specifically naming two of them, Sahon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. He zeroes in on this moment in redemptive history in Deuteronomy chapter three, right before the people Uh, The second generation crossed the River Jordan and went into the promised land. They encountered the Transjordanian kings. These were kind of practice battles before they went to places like Jericho and watched God beat those enemies for them. 
He wanted to prove himself to his people, prepare them for the conquest, and so he showed them two kings that were standing, according to Deuteronomy 3, they stood in their way. And it's just a quick fleeting reference, but it's, it's mentioned in this song, which I think is so interesting. In Deuteronomy 3, Og, king of Bashan, it mentions that he was defeated by the, by the God of Israel because he stood in the people's way. And then it has this little clarifying note, a parenthetical statement that says, his bed, his iron bed is on display in Ramah and gives the dimensions of the bed, which in our measurements are 13 feet long by six feet wide. What a strange little note, isn't it? Until you think about, that's way bigger than my bed. (laughs) And I have a big bed, I have a California king because I'm from California. But it's not 13 feet long. It'd be out the bedroom window if it was. Apparently, Og was an intimidating gentleman. Not to God. He stood in the way of Israel. Nothing stands in the way of God's love for his people. And if you don't believe me, go check the Smithsonian of Ramah and you'll see an iron bed frame. That's what he was saying. And so he reminds his people of this instance, this very specific instance of God's glorious and massive intervention against what seemed to be an insurmountable foe. And then he reminds his people of his generosity in 21 and 22, showing them that he brought them into the land. He kept his promise. They received the inheritance. And just when you think you've got a good grasp on Israelite history, maybe where do we go next? The the period deeper into the time of kings, he radically changes his tone. He spoke of conquest, deliverance, inheritance, all being fortified and caused by the love of God, but now the fourth stanza, verses 23 through 25, we'll call it providence experienced by the everlasting love of God begins with the single occurrence of the relative pronoun. It starts with, instead of two, 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 like so many of these verses, it starts with who. It's personal, it's intimate, it's emphatic. Verse 23, look at it. Who in our lowliness remembered us. That is so beautiful. After these gigantic acts of deliverance and conquest and sustenance and salvation and inheritance, he suddenly zooms in and becomes very personal and reminds every child of God, everyone who knows this covenantal love of God, reminds each of us that God hasn't forgotten you. You weren't there when Og went down. You didn't see the Red Sea split. In fact, most of God's people in Israel and in redemptive history in the church have not seen those epic moments of God's work on a massive historical level. Instead, they're told that even in their low down displace, even in their nobodiness, God saw them in their lowliness, emphatically, personally, condescendingly, providentially, and he remembered them. For the God who cannot forget to say that he 
remembers. Not something, but someone is of such superb, sublime sweetness to those who know the forever loyal love of God. To know that God hasn't forgotten you, friend, in your trial. That God hasn't forgotten you in your lowliness. That God has not put you out of his mind, not ever once because he cannot, because forever is his loyal love. Those gigantic acts of God in creation, speaking a universe into existence, and in deliverance, bringing his people to their land, are right here next to this quiet moment of God's covenantal love and commitment that he will never forget you. And then to go from that to verse 24 is to transition to a very violent word. Who tore us away from our adversaries. It's a word that means snatched like prey or ripped us away. The picture is that a lion has you, but someone loves you and they grabbed you right out of the lion's mouth. It's violent imagery. It's used in Genesis, other places in Psalms, and Lamentations, and Kings. The way a, a mother would rip her child away from a beast trying to steal it. It would be strong. It would be committed. It would be passionate. That's how God gets his people away from those who would try to harm them and get in the way of his everlasting love. You could think of countless Old Testament examples or you could think of your own testimony here. Remember when you were lost in your sin and you were running with the devil? Remember when you didn't know God and his saving love in Jesus? Remember before you believed the gospel how your sin was wrecking you, destroying your life, how it was tearing you apart? And then remember when you met Jesus, when you found out that God loves you, that he sent his son to die for you, that God raised his son up from the grave and he sits at God's right hand and Jesus died in your place. Remember how that transformed you, how you left behind that sin that ensnared you for so long and held you captive like a beast. It had you in its mouth, but now you are redeemed. You're free from it. You walked away from it. You know what happened to you? You were torn away from your adversary and the greatest adversary we face in this world is sin and death. And you and I, friends, because of the gospel of Jesus, have been rescued from sin and death. It no longer has sway over us. And so we see God's providence and his personal care. We see his rescue, not just in the grand stage of redemptive history, but we see it in our lives. Verse 25 would remind us that we're not the only ones that get to see the love of God, though. You see, God's love is experienced by all his creation. It's why verse 23 says, one who gives bread to all flesh. But we need to be careful when we talk about the omnibenevolence of God because God doesn't love all people in the same exact way, does he? It wouldn't be noble if anyone loved like that. I don't love all women the same way I love my wife. You'd run me out of here, rightfully so. God has a special covenantal 
redemptive love for his children. When you urge an unbeliever to experience the love of God, you know that God loves them because they're made in his image and likeness, but they have no idea how much more rich, how much more profound, how special, how loyal that love is when they become a part of his family. There is the the love of God in creation, and it's on display in verse 25. He gives bread to all flesh. If you wonder if God cares about this world, ask yourselves if they've ever tasted. Have they ever tasted food? Have they ever breathed his air? Have they ever experienced this world? All of his evidence that God has a general love for mankind that is intended to lead us towards the redemptive love that he has for us only in Christ. Verse 26 ends this thing with the final section. It starts the same as it ended, in praise of the everlasting love of God. Verse 26, give thanks to the God of heaven because forever is his loyal love. You never know what what a sermon is for or who you're talking to in an environment like this. I I preached this psalm before and it went sort of like this except less humid. And a few weeks later, a sweet lady from our church came up to me and and thanked me for having them read like y'all did this morning, Psalm 126, all those times. She said, Pastor, Monday I I had a meeting with my doctor and I was diagnosed with uterine cancer and I slept so good that night because I couldn't get this line out of my head because forever is his loyal love. Just a few weeks ago, a dear friend of mine lost his wife. He was 30 years old. She was 29. They were married for three years, and there was only about six weeks where she wasn't completely ravaged by cancer. Sweet, young couple. He and I spent some time together, and what he told me was holding him together was a repeated reading of Psalm 136. He wondered why this happened to him and his sweetheart. And he didn't know the thousand things God was doing, but he did know because forever is his loyal love. Whether it's on the cusp of a moment of God's work in history, of a nation, of his people, of bringing about the cross of Christ, or whether it's by your nightstand in a moment of sorrow or trial, or in a celebration of joy, we can know with all confidence that God is doing what he does for his people because forever is his loyal love. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website, 
I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.